Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of programs in which tireless charity case Jeremy Hardy looks back over 20 years in show business and then manages to focus and get on with the recording. In this week's broadcast, Mr. Hardy contemplates how to argue your position. Thank you, Peter Donaldson, and welcome, listeners. I'm joined once again by two talented players of the game Mousetrap, someone who's been with the programme for many years and still hasn't made significant progress, is Gordon Kennedy. Thank you. And before we move on to the subject of tonight's programme, I'd like to welcome our special guest, special, Gordon. Yes. <laughs> and that's someone who's been keen to appear on the show ever since she first heard she'd be out of here by 8.30, Alison Steadman. Thank you. Now, Alison, you're best known for having played Elizabeth I in the 1970s drama series Elizabeth R. <laughs> that was Glenda Jackson. Oh. she any good? Very good, Yes. What else she been in? Uh, loads, but uh, she's an MP now. What? Talk about throwing it all away. Anyway, we've done radio together before, which is good, because I know you know about performing on radio. Yes. You can do the faces if you want, but it's not strictly necessary. <laughs> well, I might do some expressions, but I won't do looks. No, no. Looks take too long, especially regret. God, yes. Yeah. Mind you, I'd love to see it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, whew, okay. Uh, wow. It is such a privilege, Miss Steadman. So subtle. You see, with your younger actresses, it's all, who oh, have got this character with an accent and a idiosyncrasy. Can I have a TV series, please? Yeah, it's all just face-pulling. No one could accuse Alison of mugging. No. I've done a bit of shoplifting, but only between jobs. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, on with the subject. How to argue your position. I won't be talking about how to attract attention to your point of view, although that's an interesting subject. Fathers for Justice are in danger of becoming more famous for their love of costumes than their point of view. Although Buckingham Palace was an obvious choice, given that royal children only see their parents for a couple of hours in the school holidays. <laughs> but let's consider how to argue your position. On the scale of national politics, there's a huge flap at Westminster about the upcoming elections and the party leaders assembling their campaign teams. Tony Blair's moved everyone around to make way for Alan Milburn. Michael Howard thinks that by dusting off ever older and weirder Tories, he'll magically find someone people like. <laughs> he must be repeatedly watching the X-Men movies and imagining that the right combination of mutants can make a winning team. <laughs> and all Tories are desperately trying to seem appealing. Anne Widdicombe had that bizarre makeover to look more like Vivian Westwood. <laughs> as though that's a good thing. And the correspondents feverishly jabber about what all this means. So if I can offer a brief piece of advice for party leaders and Westminster journalists, here's the thing. The result of the election is decided, and this is why. In a few weeks, it will be the Labour Party conference. We watch the conference and we think, oh, no, I can't vote for these people anymore. They're warmongers, they're America's lackeys, they're in the pocket of big business, they're just as bad as the Tories. And then on Monday morning, the Tory conference starts, and you think, oh, they're just not, are they? <laughs> 
And those of us who might be seen as being to the left of Labour don't do ourselves any favours by suggesting they are the same. When human beings are arguing a position, the first temptation is to overstate the case. And one of the most common ways of doing that is to make inaccurate comparisons. Sometimes in our indignation, we lose a sense of proportion. Gordon, I believe we've had a letter of complaint from a man in the West Country following comments I made on last week's show. Uh, yeah, that's right, Jeremy. Uh, right, here we go. Dear so-called Jeremy Hardy, am I the only person who's sick and tired of your continual slates against the people of Cornwall? Although not Cornish myself, <laughs> I have lived here for two weeks since <laughs> the medical professionals insist on calling my breakdown because of the medical establishment stereotyping of anyone who is different or reliant on heavy sedation. Since moving here, I've been studying the Cornish language and bought a pasty. <laughs> which I was unfortunately unable to eat because I've recently been self-diagnosed as pasty intolerant. <laughs> I have found the local people not only have a civilization going back as far as Poldark, in fact, mackerel was invented here and not by the Incas, as was previously thought, but also to be quite friendly and not as violent as I expected. And yet, you persist in stereotyping the Cornish as being rural. How are you different from the Gestapo or the Ku Klux Klan? <laughs> Why is it not all right to attack Muslims on the way to Friday prayers and yet okay to broadcast jokes about people who face no discrimination or persecution? What you're doing is quite literally exactly the same as the massacre of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. It might be polite middle-class satire, but it is genocide nonetheless. <laughs> Lots of love, Simon Plectrum. Lost wherewithal, Cornwall. Thank you, Simon. All correspondence is gratefully received and carefully filed. Well, shredded. We tried to file, but it took too long and the paper kept bending. <laughs> now, I have myself been involved in campaigns in which I found people drawing ill-considered parallels. As we discussed last week, 20 years ago, I was living in a squat in St Pancras. I'd not been there long before the local authority decided the building was due for rehab, which today means slightly woozy celebrities having a break in a private hospital, <laughs> but in those days meant slapping some paint on old council flats. In our fight to prevent our eviction, we squatters commissioned one among us who could do graphics. This was before Apple Macs, and the work was done with Letraset and wild exaggeration. <laughs> when our artist unveiled his creation, already printed by the hundred, I was mortified. Above a picture of what appeared to be two people in an empty flat in their underpants were the words, What does Camden Council have in common with the Nazi party? The final solution. I spent a lot of time with scissors that night. Now, we did have justice on our side. There was little need for the council to chuck us out because London at that time had thousands of empty council flats. One could justifiably say the capital looked quite pokey from the outside but was surprisingly spacious once you got inside. <laughs> the council used spectacular statistical ruses to prove to us that all the flats in Camden with steel shutters over their doors were not empty at all, merely resting. In fact... <laughs> To dissuade squatters, concrete was poured down the toilets. Hardly necessary, since most of us were vegetarians. But, for all their faults, I don't think I would compare Camden Council in the early 80s to the Third Reich. Comparisons with the Nazis are almost never valid. They are made because the Holocaust is by far the worst thing anyone can think of. That is not to say we should create a hierarchy of oppression. On the one hand, it's not true to say that Ariel Sharon is as bad as Hitler. On the other hand, I don't think that not being as bad as Hitler should be counted as a great achievement for a human being. <laughs> I like to think that most of us, in our funny little way, are not as bad as Hitler. 
<laughs> to be absolutely fair to Sharon, one could also say he's not even as bad as his rivals within his own party, but somehow that's not terribly consoling either. While it's wrong to equate the suffering of the Palestinians with the suffering of the European Jews under Hitler, their suffering has still been appalling, and the fact that it is appalling is manifest. It doesn't need to be compared to anything else. Can we really not understand that something's wrong without a precedent? Darling, I'm reading the stuff in the paper about the Sudan, and I just don't see what the big problem is. I think the issue is that it's like what happened in Rwanda. Oh, I see, like a Somalia. Mm, more like Bosnia meets the treatment of the Aborigines with a little bit of apartheid. Ah, uh, OK, gotcha. I'm mm. with you now. Dreadful. Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> I also use the term hierarchy of oppression. What I meant by this is that there is a danger of letting people off the hook because of their historic oppression. Because of the Nazis, some people are uneasy about criticising Israel for the occupation. And because of the occupation, some people are uneasy about criticising the Palestinian Authority for its treatment of gays. In fact, gays from all over the Middle East seek sanctuary in Israel. You might say Tel Aviv is a mecca for gays. <laughs> but that doesn't lessen Israel's culpability for the occupation. And it's not to say Israel is a paradise of progressive thought. It is the only country to have produced a transsexual Eurovision winner, Dana International, but six years on, the religious lobby is still enraged by her. Although professionally, you can see why rabbis would be annoyed by a man who's had a sex change. You try to be careful. You try not to take too much off his little schmickle. Then some surgeon takes it right back to the foundations. <laughs> The point here, I think, is that in seeing the rights and wrongs of an issue, we don't need to paint people or societies as good or evil. Likewise, one of the arguments used against the war is that Iraq was the cradle of civilization. Well, so? Croydon's a dump, but I wouldn't want America to invade it. <laughs> Let them try. I'd like to see them moving armoured divisions around a suburb in which every road ends with a car park. <laughs> That's not relevant either. Before the invasion of Afghanistan, some people argued against it on the basis that the Allies would meet determined resistance. That's not the issue. Pensioners are a pushover, but you still shouldn't mug them. <laughs> Suddenly, everyone was an expert on Afghanistan's geography and how it might impact on modern warfare. Well, unless they reach the Hindu Kush before May when the mild season sets in, US troops will become hopelessly disorientated about whether to wear a jacket or not in the evening. <laughs> And the Afghans are, after all, a warrior people who wear layers and have a network of caves that are pleasantly cool but never freezing. Ever since Napoleon was defeated by the Russian winter, it's been imagined that all imperialist outings will come a cropper because of the weather. Well, I'm sorry, weather, your puny hailstones are no match for aerial bombardment. <laughs> US tanks didn't melt in the summer heat of Iraq. It was a doddle. It wasn't a Russia. It was a Belgium. And anyone who's ever been to Belgium will know if there's anywhere an invading army might expect to get bogged down, it's there. And yet still the Germans managed to bag it twice in 25 years. <laughs> now, I mentioned the matter of Iraq being the cradle of civilization. Conversely, people who condemn US imperialism will express their opposition in terms of America being a debauched society with too many ice cream flavours. But politics should not be a beauty contest, with Robin Cook doing badly in the swimsuit section and Tony Blair scoring highly in his interview because he wants to travel and bomb underprivileged children. <laughs> But when it comes to championing a people's right to independence, too often do we express our support in terms of what a fantastic people they are. Their music is so vibrant, their language is so expressive, they're so friendly, stroke dignified, we bought some material there once, and they had a well-developed system of calculating VAT in the 4th century. <laughs> 
shouldn't matter, and it's not the point. I know that sometimes we're trying to rescue oppressed people from a colonial stereotype which says they're feckless mud people who can't grow things and to whom all forms of administration are cultural anathema. It's clearly not true that Palestine was just empty desert before Israel was founded. But we don't need to go over the top and argue that the reason the Palestinians should have their own state is that they were experimenting with an early lawnmower when the ancient Britons were still living in flats. <laughs> Many Palestinians are extremely learned and cultured people, but it shouldn't matter if they're all Philistines. Actually, I think they are Philistines. I'll check the Bible. But you know what I mean. The case for the reunification of Ireland does not hinge on Riverdance or Guinness or W.B. Yeats. America should end the blockade of Cuba, regardless of how sensual Latin music is. It shouldn't matter if people are tone-deaf, cack-handed clodhoppers, their poetry doesn't scan and their needlework's all over the place. If they've got a case, they've got a case. <laughs> And the trouble with fetishizing the culture of one party in a dispute is that we're in danger of suggesting that the culture of the other party is deficient. It's very tempting to mock the culture of people with whom we disagree, but it's not the point, except perhaps when politics finds expression in culture. It's hard to look at an apprentice boys march and feel like you're in Rio. <laughs> Orange marchers tell us, This is our culture! And you think, Yeah, but it's not very good, is it? <laughs> But there's more to the Irish Protestant community than Orangism. There are actors, musicians, poets, broadcasters and journalists, although tellingly, very few of them give enthusiastic endorsement to Ian Paisley. And this brings me on to the subject of celebrity support. But before I move on to that, Alison and Gordon, my own celebrity supporters, I'd like to conduct a little experiment in arguing your position. And before they'd let me do this series, the BBC made me go on a management training course. Now, I've devised a little playlet to demonstrate some of the skills I learned and show the listener how they can be used in an everyday environment. Now, you're both experienced actors, so I know you won't mind cold reading. Yeah, all right. Well, I usually prefer to workshop a character for several years, but, uh, okay. okay uh, well, here's your script. <clears throat> right, now, Alison, you're leaving a BBC studio at the end of the day, and Gordon, you're a robber who accosts her in the street with a knife. Right. In your own time. Okay. <clears throat> Scream! Sorry, that's the stage direction. I should have done brackets. <laughs> oh, oh, right, right, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Give me the bag, bitch. <laughs> bitch, uh, bitch, is, is that a camp bitch or more gangster? I think more gangster. I mean, he, he could be camp. Give me the bag. Give me the bag, bitch. <laughs> I'm not sure. Follow your instincts. Give me the bag, bitch, else I will cut you. I hear what you're saying, and I'm sensing a lot of anger from you. <laughs> but you must respect that my understanding of the situation is different from yours. Listen up and listen good. Uh, shouldn't that be listen well? It's dialect. Oh, right, of course. Wonderful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> listen good. I'm taking your money. I have to address my needs. I'm hurting bad. Not badly. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm getting it now. It's great. I sense your pain, but I am not the cause of your pain. You are attempting to use my money to compensate for a lack of forward planning in your budget allocation. Silence. That's not very gangster. Um, how about shut the freaking Henry up? Good, yes. <laughs> Please redirect your knife. I'm feeling very disemboweled. I think, I think that's disempowered. Sorry. 
That's my writing, sorry. Yeah, I like disemboweled. Well, try it anyway. Well, uh, where shall I go from? Um, uh, disemboweled. I have stabbing issues which I wish to resolve in a neutral setting. Lady, this ain't no neutral setting. This is the street. You're, <laughs> you're raising your voice. And that is an imp- <laughs> And that is an infringement of my space. Bitch. <laughs> your manner is confrontational and I feel personally intimidated. I apologize. I hear your apology and feel I might also have been at fault. Please accept my bag. I would accept a compromise in which you keep your children's photos. This has been productive. <laughs> So, Jeremy, what's this bit? The kiss. Yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, anyway, thanks both of you, and I hope that was instructive. But on with the subject of celebrity support for political parties. Political organisations always feel they can argue their case more convincingly if famous people sign up to it. It's always a pleasure seeing the dwindling band of misfits who support the Conservative Party. Now, Alison, you've done a bit of research on this. Who have they got left? Uh, yes, I checked their website just before the start of the show, and I'm just checking again. Um, yep. Already several key members of the 1973 production of Rookery Nook at Camberley Playhouse seem to have slipped off the list. Uh, they've still got an understudy from Ippy Tombi, so that's their black person. <laughs> but in terms of actual celebrity, uh, that really only leaves the disc jockey Mike Reed and TV cook Anthony Worrell-Thompson. Yeah, Anthony Worrell-Thompson does sum up the state of the Tories. You look at that face and you think, flounder. Now, Gordon, you've been researching Labour celebrity support. How are they doing? Yeah, actually, not that well either. Tony Blair could once fill number 10 with pop stars. Now he's left with ginger pubes from Simply Red. <laughs> Mind you, UKIP's very existence seems to revolve around the sudden recruitment of Robert Kilroy Silk. How does that work? Yeah, I know. He does have the look of an over-enthusiastic gynaecologist. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and he denounced Arabs as limb amputators. At least limb amputation is a thing a person has to endure a maximum of four times. Kilroy was on week after week. <laughs> and that was cruel and unusual punishment. I suppose he is at least an ex-politician, unlike party colleague Joan Collins, who seems to have been independent from the UK for a very long time and semi-devolved from the real world. Now, in America, the Democrats massively outgun the Republicans in terms of star support, but celebrities there are sometimes said to be liabilities because of their lives are so pampered. Republicans make do with action movie stars who are seen as robust and grounded, although how Arnold Schwarzenegger could be seen as a safe pair of hands is beyond me. <laughs> At least his father always kept one hand where you could see it. <laughs> the Tories go through phases of trying to appear less nasty. Howard now seems to want to speak of his immigrant ancestry all the time. He was less vocal about it as Home Secretary. Most of us put our parents in a home. I imagine he put his in a detention centre. <laughs> 
His champions tried to project his cold image as being the result of a fine mind. When he got himself into a pickle, saying that although he supported the Iraq war, he wouldn't have voted with the government, political correspondents told us that because he's a barrister by trade, he was arguing his case in a legalistic way and that the rest of us were just too thick to get it. Well, pity the accused when the jury can't make head and a tail of what his counsel is saying. You're looking at 25 years and your brilliant brief has decided to conduct your whole defence in Latin. <laughs> and the fact is, we weren't too thick to understand Howard. His position was untenable. He wants to benefit from disquiet about a war he supported. The Tories and their allies are traditional militarists, and they just can't bear the fact that Tony Blair has presided over more death in seven years than they could achieve, even if their plans for the health service were implemented. <laughs> But as I say, reality is bad enough without the anti-war movement embellishing its case. We shouldn't, for example, waste too much energy on 9-11 conspiracy theories. We are right about many things. Saddam Hussein was not responsible for 9-11, but Al-Qaeda unquestionably were. Some might say, Yes, well, that's what they want you to think. But regardless of what they want us to think, it is true. It's not to be afraid of. It doesn't justify war. And we can still point out that Al-Qaeda were a creation of American intelligence, although I think it's fair to say American intelligence have let them get a little bit out of hand and is wishing it had set clearer boundaries for them and fed them fewer E-numbers when they were little. <laughs> it's fair to say the White House blithely ignored the dangers posed by Al-Qaeda, but let's not spend too much time on the web. There's a theory that no plane hit the Pentagon on September the 11th, 2001. But well, I've seen the pictures, and if no plane hit the Pentagon, Washington has a hell of a problem with termites. <laughs> and perhaps the most inventive theory is the one that says George W. Bush organised the attack. Now, I'm sorry, that was a skilled operation. <laughs> Involving Stanley knives, and we know he's not allowed to hold the sharp things. <laughs> there are many things wrong with him. He's a case for alcoholics not recovering. Someone should slap a tequila patch on him fast to get him to chill out. Man needs a drink. His angry yearning for one is propelling us to Armageddon. I think we can justly say he's not a good person. But I doubt whether it says criminal mastermind on his passport. <laughs> what we know, and what is scary, is that he seems to sublimate his addiction through religion. Clinton I felt safer with. He did cold, bloody, cynical things, but you never felt he was on a crusade. He was ostensibly a Christian, as any US president has to be, but he never gave more than a casual nod to it. He was too busy on the receiving end of the casual nodding. Well, true. <laughs> now, the worrying thing about all religions is that ultimately they don't argue their positions. All our Heavenly Father has to say is, because I said so, that's why. <laughs> Any counter-argument is met with a pitying smile. All religions have some good standalone bits, but then just have stuff you have to do for no other reason than it's in a book. And if you don't approach scripture with the idea it's divinely inspired, it reads like a stilted essay by a 14-year-old who's a bit of a loner and really thinks he's onto something. <laughs> And people ask why God allows such terrible things to happen in the world. I've assumed for a long time that there is no God, but I'm starting to think that it's entirely possible there is a God and he's a lazy, stupid, callous drunk. <laughs> Not only does he move in a mysterious way, he's uncoordinated. In fact, he's downright clumsy. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to move these tectonic plates. Is it... oh, 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 that, oh. 
I've set that bloody volcano off. Uh, uh, what am I going to do with all that pumice? I have to create a plague of hard skin in the feet, I suppose. Now, where did I put the Ark of the Covenant? Uh, I put it on the roof of the car outside Asda, in the bag, with the sealant for the San Andreas Fault. <laughs> I should really get someone in to do that properly. Are you going to guess Yellow Pages, Gabriel? <laughs> Gabriel! He didn't deliberately plague Egypt with locusts and frogs, he just dropped them. Rivers ran blood because he cut himself shaving. That's why he grew the beard after that. <laughs> Nonetheless, one of the arguments for the existence of God is the this can't be all there is argument. Not only do some of us feel that existence can't be as banal as it seems, that there must be some universal force, some superior being, someone you know would never say, cold enough for you, when it's cold. <laughs> there is also a tendency to hope that our existence isn't extinguished just because someone says... I'm calling it. Oh. Hey, did you feel that? I think we just went over something. I've put me lippy on all crooked now. Hey, hold the wheel for a second, will you? <laughs> now, as I've suggested, I don't set much store by the argument that the universe is so wondrous that there must be a divine plan. Most of it appears to be a void with the odd planet where nothing lives, the atmosphere is unbreathable gas, it rains sulfuric acid and you can't get a cup of tea anywhere. Our bit is the only half-decent bit of space there appears to be, unless you believe superior intelligences travel light years across the galaxy simply to trample our wheat. <laughs> it's not even a good practical joke. No one cares apart from farmers and that bloke from the trogs. They could at least make us all apple pie beds or steal Christmas like the Grinch. And what efforts have they made at exploration? Do they think they're likely to find anything interesting up a hick's bum? <laughs> I like to think that if humanity ever does conquer space, we make a bit more effort at communicating with other civilizations than vandalizing their arable produce and checking a few prostates. <laughs> Walter Raleigh only had a boat and he brought back fags and spuds and invented the bicycle. <laughs> I want God to make a case for himself. Humans can argue religious ethics. That's fine. Ethics are good. Codes for living are good. People say politics and religion should be kept separate. But that doesn't make any sense, really. If you believe a mitzvah, a commandment, is right, wouldn't you want it in statute? Maybe not the ox one, but you'd think thou shalt not kill is important enough at least to warrant a free vote on a private member's bill. <laughs> Though I suspect it would get a mauling from the Defence Select Committee. <laughs> Anyhow... Before we go, there's just time for one more look at the state of celebrity support for the Conservative Party. I'm just checking their website now. Yes, seems to be holding steady. Have they got John McCrewick? You kind of feel they should have, don't you? <laughs> oh, hang on, hang on. Howard's appointed a new spokesman for the colonies. Yes, Anthony Eden. He's dead, isn't he? Uh, yes, but he is standing for Eastbourne South. <laughs> Can't Howard find some of the ones who are quite popular? I mean, people quite like Ken Clark. Yeah, Portillo. Apparently he's a gay icon. You mean he's easily accessible on the desktop? <laughs> oh, they were just giddy student days. Heady, don't you mean? Probably that too. <laughs> anyway, good night. <laughs> Thank you.
Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred TV action hero Gordon Kennedy and proper actor with gestures and everything, Alison Steadman. The producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC.